Um, <clears throat> this morning, um, uh, we are going to talk about um, something that uh, Auberon Waugh said, who was the son of Evelyn Waugh, who wrote Brideshead Revisited, and everybody knew him as Braun uh, Waugh. And um, uh, Braun Waugh uh, said this about an incident he had with his father. I, needed, I never treated anything he had to say on faith or morals very seriously uh, from that time on. And so he had a, um, you can sit next to your wife if you want, there's a free spot. <laughs> okay. Um, we're going to kind of talk about that today. We're going to talk a little bit about parenting, but really this applies to every single relationship. And um, there's a book that I'm not allowed to recommend to you, so I won't say it. Uh, but it's a home game by Michael Lewis, An Accidental Guide to Fatherhood. And he wrote Moneyball and The Blind Side and things like that. And again, I can't really recommend it because it's not wholly appropriate. But uh, I really think that Michael Lewis is onto something uh, when he talks about... Um, raising his children and what works and what doesn't work and just sort of what he's learned through the school of hard knocks. Uh, but above all, um, he realized that sort of the, the tough line approach to parenting, meaning, uh, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child, which of course is in Proverbs, which we're going to get to in a minute. But he just said, you know, for some reason, uh, the more I get on my kid's case, the less it seems to work. I don't know if you've ever been there, uh, but uh, it actually makes them worse. And uh, you could say the same thing about your spouse or your brother or your sister or whoever else. But I just want to read a story. It's, it's somewhat lengthy, but uh, it's pretty good. And if I'm going to try it, I'll censor it the whole way through. But if anything slips, uh, Charlie Norwood turned me on to this book, so blame him. Okay. Just four weeks after the birth of my son, both of my daughters are living, in effect, outside the law. Martin Luther once, or uh, I think it was Luther that said, you're either into total lawlessness or you're into total law. You're one or the other. So in this case, the girls are outside the law. He had two girls and a boy. They act as if they have nothing to lose, and materially speaking, they don't. They've behaved so badly for so long that everything that might be taken away from them has been taken away. TV, candy, desserts, play dates, special dinners, special breakfasts, special outings with parents. They're like a pair of convicts in a Soviet gulag with nothing more than they need to survive. And still, they continue to subvert the authorities. Oddly, their teachers all say that at school, they remain little angels. One evening, it's just me and the little angels at the dinner table. Tabitha nurses Walker in another room. It's his wife and newborn son. I have just tried and failed to settle the tenth dispute of the evening. Who will sit in which seat? With a coin flip. At first, they loved this new approach to conflict resolution. It was fair. It was interesting. It was new. And then I pulled out the coin to flip it. I get to call it. No, Quinn, shut up. I get to call it. And off they went again at the tops of their lungs, which they will do. I now know until Quinn clobbers Dixie, the two girls, Quinn and Dixie, with a hairbrush or Dixie rakes her fingernails across Quinn's chest or some near mortal wound is inflicted. Earlier this very day, seeking solace, I described their strange case over lunch to a good friend who happens to be a social psychologist. Do you know the data on siblings across species, he asked. Before I was even half done, I didn't. Oh yeah, he said, half the time they kill each other. <laughs> <laughs> 
He ran through a few species. Sand shark siblings eat each other in their mother's oviducts. Hyena siblings eat each other the minute they get out. The blue-footed booby is especially ruthless. If their siblings drop below 80% of normal body weight, he explained, they peck them to death. That would be Dixie, whose teeth marks can now be found on her sister's leg. I glare at my children. They glare at me. They think I am weak, I decide. They want to play hardball. They don't know what hardball is. They will know and they will learn. Yet another generous neighbor has brought us yet another extravagant dessert, newborn, a ginger and molasses cake topped with whipped cream. But they are grounded, no desserts for a week. In better times, I might sympathize with their predicament. I might toss them a crumb. At the very least, I would sneak my cake later alone. Not now. I cut myself a large piece and crown it with whipped cream all the while feeling two pairs of eyes tracking me around the kitchen. Heaping great dollops of molasses and whipped cream onto my plate, I sit back down. Their own sad plates are decorated with cold, half-eaten vegetables. I coat the first bite in whipped cream, swipe it once through the molasses, and slowly raise the fork to my mouth. I then see Dixie's face. Her lower lip trembles, and tears stream down her sweet little face. It's an involuntary response to a horrible realization. Daddy doesn't care. <laughs> He's going to inhale his yummy dessert even though he knows Dixie can't have any. It takes a few seconds for the sobbing to kick in and she runs from the room. See what you did, Daddy, shouts Quinn, the older sister, chasing after her. Through gritted teeth, I shovel the ginger molasses cake, but as I do, I sense uneasily that I've read this story before. I wait until everyone is asleep and then dig it out of my bookshelves. Well, this do was the British journalist Bron Walls, what is what he called his memoir. And on page 67, I found what I'm looking for, Bron's description of his father, Evelyn. And this is the, the story. On one occasion, just after the war, the war, World War II, the first consignment of bananas arrived. Neither I, my sister Teresa, nor my sister Margaret had ever eaten a banana but we had heard about them as the most delicious taste in the world. When this first consignment arrived, the socialist government decided that every child in the country should be allowed one banana. An army of civil, civil servants issued a library of special banana coupons, and the great day arrived when my mother came home with three bananas. All three were put on my father's plate, and before the anguished eyes of his children, he poured on cream, which was almost unprocurable, and sugar, which was heavily rationed, and ate all three. This is uh, Michael Lewis now. When I first read that passage, I thought, what a monster. Now I think, the poor guy. <laughs> From then on, Auburn concluded, I never treated anything he had to say on faith or morals very seriously. That was the only time... Lewis can imagine Evelyn replying, when I treated my children with the barbarity with which they treated me. Well, um, and then it goes from there. You should, it's, it's, it's a, I can't recommend it, but it's a decent read. Okay, now the thing about that catches my attention on this is one is we've all been in the situation that Michael Lewis has been in, and what are you going to do? Are you going to pull the trigger? What are you going to do? And, um, and, you know, it is kind of true when you say, look, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Uh, but that practically is never true in the child's eyes. But also, um, 
with a story about the Walls. Uh, um, Evelyn Waugh was uh, a, ca a, a Roman Catholic to the nth uh, degree. And uh, he, when he wrote uh, his, his magnum opus, uh, Brideshead Revisited, uh, he was clear when he wrote the studio when they were going to make it into um, the BB, it's not BB, I think it's an ITV series with Jeremy Irons. If you all ever have like 15 hours on your hands, it actually takes you longer to watch it than it takes you to read it. But he wrote some, um, he wrote to the studio that was putting it together what it is that he meant when he wrote it. He wanted them to know what his point was. And he said that it was explicitly Christian. And he said, the novel deals with what is theologically termed the operation of grace. That is to say, the unmerited and unilateral act of love by which God continually calls souls to himself. It's pretty good, right? Grace is not confined to be the happy, prosperous, and conventionally virtuous. There is no stereotyped religious habit of life, as may be seen from the vastly dissimilar characters of the, canon, of the, of the canonized saints. God has a separate plan for each individual by which he or she may find salvation. The story of Brideshead Revisited seeks to show the working of several such plans in the lives of a single family, which are the, um, um, the family that... Uh, Charles Ryder deals with in the story. Now, um, what I see here, uh, and I, I see it when I look in the mirror, is a disconnect between the way that Evelyn Wall parents and what Evelyn Wall actually believes. Right? Uh, Evelyn Wall has just talked about this unmerited grace and uh, God having a plan for people's lives, and whilst believing that, devours the only three bananas that his whole family is entitled to with cream and sugar uh, as they watch. And Braun Waugh's response was, um, I hate you. And not just hate, it actually followed him for the rest of his life. And he used to be a pretty decent novelist, uh, but he quit because he was afraid that he would be compared to his dad. They didn't compare him to his dad initially, but he was afraid that that might happen. And so he just quit and he became a very successful journalist. And you will be happy to know that um, that he, he remained within the church, but still he clearly did not um, do very well uh, with his father. And um, I have these everyday occurrences with my children. Uh, our oldest is um, uh, three and a half. And uh, the thing about Lily is, and I said this in the sermon, but I didn't really drive it home a couple weeks ago. The thing with children is that everything that they receive is a gift but everything that they receive is a gift. Uh, if you give a child something, they have no intention of reciprocating. Right? They don't, you know, if you go to a store and they see something in the aisle, how many of your young children ever say, Mom, give me the money and I'll pay you back? No, they say, get me this. Right? Or give, and if you get it, they, you know, they really, if they have manners, they'll say thank you. Right? There's no intention they're going to say, you know, next time I'll get you fruit roll-ups. That never happens. Uh, but the other thing that I realize that I am guilty of is that somewhere along the way, we teach our children how to earn. We teach our children how to earn. And so I find myself often uh, at the dinner table and say, Lily, if you eat all of your vegetables, then you may have a piece of cake. 
What happens is, you know, she'll draw attention to the fact that she's eating her vegetables. Daddy, look, I've eaten a green bean. And then finally at the end, she goes, okay, I'm ready for cake. And I'll look at the plate. And there on her plate are a lot of green beans. Uh, but what she will do then is she won't admit that she, she won't lie. She'll say, but I ate a couple, so can I have some cake? Right? Look, I've put forward a good faith effort. I've eaten a proportion of my beans. Therefore, I am entitled from the work that I have done. Right? I'm not expecting the full wage. I didn't get the whole job done, but I deserve a little bit of cake because I did a little bit of work. And uh, in those situations, what I realize I've done is I have just taught my child to earn. Now, it plays itself out differently um, as you get older. Uh, you know, I don't say to Lauren, Lauren, eat your beans and then you can have your cake. Uh, but uh, I wonder how it plays out in your life. I know how it plays out in mine where I think, well, I, you know, I know that I haven't done this wholeheartedly, but I'd like some credit for it. You know, I, I'd like a little bit of that. And I learned it at the dinner table when I was a child. And I'm teaching my child that. And so I actually have to check myself and say, I'm not going to play this game with my daughter. I'm simply not. Now, um, we are going to get to, well, how do you get your child to eat your beans? Um, but um, in the situation um, with her eating the beans, you know, it's true that my daughter needs discipline in regard to her behavior, but I had reduced her discipline to sort of an action consequence thing. If you behave, you can have cake. If you don't, no cake. Do I really want my daughter's behavior to be beholden to a baked good? Is that, is that what I want the foundation of my daughter's moral behavior to be? Am I really just looking for behavioral modification? Uh, because an approach like that is going to leave others like it left Braun Wah, not hearing anything else the father had to say. And as a father, and as a son, and as a Christian, and as a husband, I need my heart changed, not trained. And the only way that this happens is when God, whose property is always to have mercy, breaks through. And so uh, the question that I would put before us is, is there a difference between parenting and Christian parenting? Or is there a difference between relationships and Christian relationships? Well, yes, uh, there is a difference, but how does it work itself out practically in the life of the individual? Well, all other religions in the world, even the most moral of atheists, believe that the law can perfect us. But Christianity, and Christianity alone, teaches that, the on that only the gospel of grace can transform. And so how does this make our parenting different? Uh, next week, we're going to talk a little bit about the parable, well, we're going to talk a lot about the parable of the prodigal son. And um, clearly, something is going on in our homes uh, because, I don't know, this is a scary statistic, but um, kids primarily derive or come to an understanding of who God is by watching their parents. Yikes, right? And... Um, and that is, is a heavy, heavy thing. And when parents come to uh, do pre-baptism counseling, uh, and one of the vows that you take as a, as a parent who's about to have their child baptized is that you will um, raise your child in, in the faith of the church, that you will bring them, you know, that you'll share the gospel with them and things like that. And, um, and I'll say, well, what are some ways that you can do this practically in your home? And what do you think that the number one answer is? What did y'all say? Someone just said it. Read the Bible. That's good. That's actually better. Bailey, point for you. 
take them to church. That's not, well, how are you, well, we're going to get involved in the church and we're going to take them to church. That's great. That's really good. But then I say, you know, um, the, the model that the Bible uses and says that the closest thing that we have on earth uh, that shows God's love for his people is marriage. And so does your marriage, is your marriage about gospel reenactment? Does your marriage show, is it marked by the gospel? And that requires a great deal of vulnerability uh, on the part of the parent to be able to go and apologize to the child or for the parent to ask forgiveness from the other spouse uh, for what they've done um, rather than um, what um, a lot of people's idea is, which is, you know, we don't want the kids to see anything. We'll just bring our A game. And, of course, that just leads to the notion, leads them to the notion that, um, like I, I've said before, swan syndrome, which is on top of the water, beautiful, elegant, and pretty, but underwater paddling like crazy just to stay afloat. And as long as you can't see what's going on under the water, then everything's fine and everything's great. But where that leads us, and the statistics are pretty startling, depending on what survey you look at, 61% to 88% of young people leave the church after they leave the home. They leave the church. Now, 35% return, like Braunwall returned. But 61% to 88%, depending on the survey you look at, of young people leave the church after they leave the home. Because there is a disconnect. Because most kids grow up thinking that Christianity is primarily about what? Being nice. Being good. Um, that you know God loves you if you're good, and God will reward you if you are good. And if you're bad, um, then God won't like you quite as much, and that he won't... Uh, reward you. If you're a little good, God will give you a little bit of cake, right? Because you put in a good faith effort. Uh, and But what Christianity teaches is actually, in spite of your behavior, God gives you an entire cheesecake to eat on your own. His love is gratuitous towards us. Now, the hard thing about this too, though, is that um, the response in the baptism service of will you raise this child in um, the faith of the church is, did anyone ever have a child baptized? <laughs> uh, thank you, and it's been a while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> not a while, but it's been a, it's been a couple years. How many years has it been? How old's Grace? How old's Grace? Grace is 12. Well, there you go. So there you go. Good for you, Trent. So I, I will with God's help. Now, God help us if... Um, um, uh, I mean, mer mercy if, if the answer was just I will. If the answer were just I will. Because there is no magical formula to raising a child. But it's I will with God's help. Because the initiation is primarily God's. Right? That, you know, you are, are trying to be faithful, not successful... Uh, to uh, the gospel mandate uh, to raise your child in the faith of Christ, uh, and yet you know that God is the primary motivator and the primary actor in that. And at some point you have to give your child over uh, to God's mercy and God's grace. Uh, I have a family that I'm very close to from where I grew up, and they had five children, and they were a wonderful Christian family and fantastic uh, and they would have family devotions on Sunday nights, and if anybody was over the house, they would do it then. And they have, of their children, four of them are either in full-time ministry or married to somebody who is in full-time ministry, right? The other child lives in Montana, <laughs> right? Uh, this ch you could ask Jonathan, um, 
all about, you know, what is the gospel? And he could articulate it. Uh, he could say, you know, what are your responsibilities? He could do all of that stuff. And yet he is antagonistic toward the faith. And it would be easy for his parents and his family to sit back and say, where did we go wrong with him? What did we do different? But the bottom line is they really didn't do anything different. Uh, they were faithful parents. Uh, but what they... Uh, had to come to the conclusion it was that uh, they will, with God's help, and that they had to entrust their son Jonathan uh, to the Lord, and they know in their heart that they were faithful and shared the gospel with him, and it's going to be up to the Holy Spirit uh, to work that out. And so for any of you that have wayward children, uh, never underestimate uh, the seeds of the gospel that you sow, uh, because God uh, often does reap those seeds, uh, and you just have to pray that he will do that. So uh, that is, is one thing that I would say. Uh, the other thing that I would say is that um, watching that family uh, growing up, <coughs> when I became a parent, um, I thought, well, first when I got married, uh, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm a husband, I'm uh, a minister, and so I, I'm the sort of spiritual leader of my family. And, um, and so I thought, you know, if we're Christians, what we'll do is we'll wake up every single morning at the crack of dawn, and we'll sing some hymns and open up our Bibles. And, uh, and what, uh, I think I can say this, I mean, Laura and I um, more often spend our time at St. Mattress by the Springs um, <laughs> in the early morning hours. Um, we don't do that uh, because that's not in our disposition to be up. But I thought in order to be the, the perfect Christian family, that's what you had to do. And as well with children, uh, to say, okay, family, it is time for me to disciple you en masse gather around and, and sit at my feet. And let me tell you, that doesn't work. And um, and I, I was quiet about it. I didn't tell anyone about it because I thought that, well, what am I doing? Why am I failing? And then I heard Tim Keller say something with his wife that was really refreshing and wonderful to hear. And he said, you know, we don't do that. We don't have a time on Sunday nights when we do that. Uh, and he said, in fact, early on in my marriage with Kathy, I think it was the first 15 years, um, they didn't have any time together in the Bible. He said, but they realized they needed to. And even in little things, they just committed to pray uh, every day, even if it's in bed. And they just said, God, thank you for this day. That was something. And he said, furthermore, with his boys, he said they were all so different. And so he would try to meet each of them where they were. So for one of them, I remember, he said that they would go out to lunch. They'd have lunch together and they'd talk about things and they'd talk about life and uh, you know, they talk about uh, God and uh, the gospel. And uh, for another one, it, it was something different. And so uh, don't be constrained by these ideas of this is what you have to do in order to be the perfect family. Yet on the other hand, if, you're, um, if your family is disposed to, to do those types of things, if you like early morning Bible studies and, and your kids are, you know, rise and shine and give God the glory, then do it. Uh, that's great if that's uh, what your um, personality is. Um, but there's no right way uh, to do that. But I think um, I'm going to read a quote from a book I also would recommend called Give Them Grace um, by Elise Fitzpatrick and her daughter Jessica Thompson. And, uh, and this is how they sum up uh, Christian parenting, and I think it's right. Christian children and their parents don't need to learn, don't need to, learn to be nice they need death and resurrection and a savior who has gone before them as a faithful high priest, who was a child himself and who lived and died perfectly in their place. They need a savior who extends the offer of complete forgiveness, 
total righteousness and indissoluble adoption to all who believe. This is the message we all need. We need the gospel of grace and the grace of the gospel. So, um, you know, this is uh, hard and this is counterintuitive to me uh, because um, my natural disposition is, and all of ours, is to go toward the law, right? The Bible says that the law is written on our hearts, and most of us think that that's a good thing. I mean, in some sense it is, but but the law is written on our hearts. What's not written on our hearts is the gospel, is grace, is forgiveness. That kind of stuff is not written on our hearts. And so our natural disposition, uh, whether you're a Christian or not, is, is to go toward be- behavioral modification. And yet, uh, what changes you and me as adults also is what changes children and ought to permeate the way that we parent, which is the gospel. Now, this is scary because now your question is, so Andrew... You saying you don't have to make them eat their green beans? You're just going to let them do uh, whatever they want? No, that's not what I'm saying, because the law does have its function. If you have a rambunctious, rebellious child, as Martin Luther said, drop the hammer of the law and crush them. <laughs> right? There is a place for that. There is a place for that, but there's not necessarily a, a guilt. You know, it's so funny, you know, <clears throat> if, if your child's misbehaving, oftentimes I'll want to joke around and say, you're making the baby Jesus cry. Um, <laughs> but... But that's, that is not effective. Um, you're making God very angry right now. And so, I mean, really what we're saying is you are driving me crazy. And uh, I think that it is okay to tell you that you are rambunctious, you're out of control, and you're about to be punished, or you are going to be punished. Here's what's, and, and then do it. Absolutely. Um, but the question is, is how do you handle the child who's already been crushed? How do you handle the child who's already been crushed? Um, and um, that is um, a more difficult thing uh, to look at because, or to discern, uh, because um, again, it is counterintuitive to us. And um, I find that because it is counterintuitive, it sounds really weird, but Lily uh, is at that age where she likes to push her little sister down. And her little sister has a gigantic head. She's at that age where she looks like a, a human bobble doll. Like all children go through that age. And she realizes that that is her number one weapon. Like that's her asset. And so she headbutts. That's what she does. She headbutts Lily, whose head is like a peanut. And, uh, and Lily gets very upset, and they go after one another, and they're screeching and crying. And, and, um, and I, I try to tell Lily, you know, Lily, you have a responsibility as an older sister to love your sister. And Lily said, I don't want to love her. I don't want to love her. Now, what do you do? I could remind her again, well, Lily, the Bible says that you ought to love your sister as you love yourself. And greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for their sister. She would say, no, no, I still don't love her. Uh, and so as corny and crazy as this sounds, <coughs> what I will say to Lily is, Lily, you're right. It is hard to love your sister, especially when she headbutts you. <laughs> but you know what? Every day of our lives, we are incredibly mean and cruel to Jesus, and he has every reason not to love us, and yet he does love us. And so let's pray that God gives us hearts to love our sisters. Now, she looks at me like a dog looking at a clock sometimes. But, 
you know, but then again, I mean, you know, kids, you never know. You never know where it's going to set in. And that's hard. You know, how do you witness to your kids? You witness to them through everyday life, through everyday situations. You know, it's not like, okay, time to do some witnessing. You know, let's... Um, you know, I used to think that, okay, a good way to witness is is the grace at mealtime. That has become a tyranny. Like, Lily has made up her own sort of rap versions of God <laughs> Our Father, and it's inappropriate. Sometimes it's sacrilegious. And, um, and, and she'll say a potty word, and she goes, I didn't say a potty word. I was like, I was right here. Um, so it's, so, I mean, even in that, like, how do you deal with that? Like, during prayer time, your kid is goofing off. <clears throat> you know, say, Lily, you're right. Um, thankfully, even though we're not ready to listen, uh, God is always ready to listen. Is always able to do more than we could ever ask or imagine. And so even when we're not listening, uh, God is. And he loves us so much that he gives us that which we don't deserve. Now go to bed. Right? Um, no, I don't add that part. Uh, so it's that counterintuitiveness that, um, like, it doesn't come naturally to us. And, um, you know, I, I think that... Um, my prayer life is a lot of I will uh, with God's help. Um, but as Christian parents, um, we ought to be different because the good news of God's grace is meant to permeate and transform every relationship that we have, including our relationship with our children. And all the typical ways we construct to get things done and get others to do our bidding are simply obliterated by a gospel message that tells us that we are all, parents and children, both radically sinful and radically loved. Now I'm going to stop it there because I'm thinking y'all y'all are thinking of something right now. Questions, comments, concerns. Yeah. She's laughing right now. What? She's laughing right now. The grace is not a quid pro quo. Right. Yeah, um, let me, uh, yeah, that actually is a very good point um, because all of us are looking, I mean, it would kind of be nice if it were a quid pro quo. Then we would know what we were dealing with. Um, It would be more manageable. And um, there used to be a bookstore in the bookstore, there used to be a book in the bookstore at St. Helena's uh, where I served last called Have a New Child by Friday. And uh, it didn't work. And then, and then, and then the same author came out with one, "Have a New Husband by Friday." Now, what I find curious is there never was a book called "Have a New Wife by Friday," um, but I asked them to pull them off the shelves because we're hung. We want look. Just give me five ways. Give me five steps to get my ch- child to be different. Give me five steps to get my spouse uh, to be different. Um, and a lot of people will will look at Proverbs, and uh, and uh, which I think is what was quoted this morning. And the thing that you need to know about Proverbs is it's not meant to be um, help. I mean, it is sort of helpful hints for living. They're maxims, but not all the time are they true. Like it does say, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. But it also says that the diligent hand will always find wealth and that which is lazy will always find poverty. Now, um, in some sense, that's true. But played out, I mean, I know people who work really hard who are not going to be rich, right? So um, one uh, 
a guy named Rod Rosenblatt who has spoken at the Advent once said that reading the book of Proverbs is like driving cross country with your mother-in-law. Um, it'll sink in. It's very funny. Um, <clears throat> and so I think that what you, you need to look at the genre of scripture for what it is. For what it is. Uh, and, I, and that's why I kind of said what I said at the very end where God loves a cheerful giver, but it'll take money from a grouch too. Right? Um, so uh, it was a good talk. Um, but I think that when we're looking at things like in seminary, the big thing was uh, everybody, especially the men who were single, would read uh, Proverbs 31. Right? Uh, what I'm looking for is a Proverbs 31 uh, wife. And, uh, and, of course, if you're a woman and you read this, uh, it doesn't encourage you uh, to rise while it is night and provide food for the household and portions for her maidens uh, and considers a field and buys it and the fruit of the hands or plants a vineyard and all this stuff before the sun even comes up. Uh, I don't know about you, but it, it, it's not encouraging. It's actually crushing. It, it makes us look at it and say, well, that's, um, that's not the kind of wife that I am, and, and honestly, I'm not exactly sure that's the kind of wife I want to be. <laughs> um, but I think that when you look at things like Proverbs and you look at Proverbs 31, um, you look at it uh, for what it is. It is a description of, uh, of an excellent wife, uh, but it is not meant to be a standard by which all women are measured. And so if you're a woman out there and you're reading Proverbs 31 and you think, I'm going to cut that part out of the Bible, uh, don't. Uh, but at the same time, take courage because you're not like this. That's why Jesus came, right? Uh, if you were like this, if there was a woman in the world who was actually Proverbs 31, who this clearly was written by a man because no woman exists like this, uh, and because in a woman, you know, it wouldn't exist if a, if a woman wrote it. Um, if anybody was this perfect, they would need Jesus, they wouldn't need Jesus. And so I think that when you read Proverbs and even in your everyday interactions uh, with your children, um, what is going to transform them and what is going to change them is the gospel. And it's not, and it's at the same time, it's not a quid pro quo. It's not an angling. Like I'm doing this to manipulate you in order to make you behave in a certain way. Right? We're not looking for behavior. What we're looking for is a changed heart. Right? We share the gospel with them. God intervenes. They receive it. They take it in as their own personal relationship with Jesus, and because of that, their heart will change. That's, that's what we're looking for. We're not looking for the gospel to manipulate them to, to behave better. Lauren, you want to say Really? <laughs> Kelly? No, because it has a potty word in it. <laughs> There's a potty word in it. Yeah, yeah. our children are not crushed. Yeah, our children aren't crushed. They are just, I mean, they, I mean, Lily is sin boldly. I mean, she, she knows that. But, um, but you know, at the same time, it is, um, again, you see at the dinner table and other things uh, how that starts to work itself out later in life. You know, you start to see those things at a young age and you think, golly, um, we pray that God uh, inter intervenes in their life. So, um, so I will with God's help is the big thing. And uh, again, to, to trust in the gospel to change your child's heart and, um, and uh, to know when to apply the law and um, when to crush their little hearts. Uh, but when their heart's a little crushed, uh, ready to give them the gospel so that they're able to uh, receive. And uh, children, uh, you don't have, 
children get it a lot more than we give them credit for. Um, children, I think, do understand the nature of sin. Um, good example. Um, uh, I think uh, that um, they they get it. They get it. And so if they're able to get that, um, because if, you know, hey, why did you do this? If, I, if you ask your child when they're little, hey, why'd you do that? What is the answer you, you get a lot? I don't know. I don't know. That's actually pretty insightful, right? Because the answer is, yeah, it's true. Like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, that's St. Paul. I don't know why. I just do, and I wish I didn't. So um, if they're able to get that, uh, then they ought to be able to get the gospel. Because if they say, I don't know, uh, there's a part of them, I think, that says, I wish I did. I wish I had a real answer to give you, uh, which means that they need to hear the gospel. Okay? Anybody? All right, let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your gospel, and we thank you... Um, for calling us to be uh, in relationship with one another, whether that's as spouses or as parents or as grandparents or as siblings uh, or whatever the case may be, as children, uh, Lord, um, that we all need to hear the gospel. And Lord, we pray that uh, as we go through our everyday lives uh, with the little ones around us, uh, that we would be bold to share the gospel and trust that uh, in spite of the fact it doesn't feel like it'll work, um, but trust uh, in its power to change their lives as it has changed ours. In Jesus' name, amen.